I think that this is a, a very poorly served market because you can really take advantage of some of these people because they're like, oh, I can't get a bank loan. I'm willing to give you, you know, everything I got just to get into this home. And some people say, well, you have to, you know, refinance with a bank in a year. Otherwise you lose all of your deposit. We are not in that business at all. We're, we're trying to make sure that, you know, their monthly payment doesn't exceed three times, you know, their gross monthly income to make sure that they're not overextending themselves. We set them up so that their rental payments actually count towards their Experian credit bureau, which helps then just build their credit history. Welcome to Real Estate Deal Closers with Annette Talee, where we focus on the deals. Our guests are real estate closers who will share in detail the whole process from finding a deal to closing it, as well as strategies and tips to help you do the same. Here is your host, Annette Talee. Welcome to another episode of Deal Closers. I am your host, Annette Talee, and my guest today is Adam Zak. Welcome, Adam. Thank you, Annette, for having me. Wonderful to be here. I am excited to have you because Adam and I, we are on the same mastermind, so we know each other for a little bit, and he has a very unique investing strategy that I want you to learn about. So let me tell you a little bit about Adam. Uh, he's a professional civil engineer who is also an active real estate investor. He lives in North Dakota and does deals mostly in the upper Midwest. He specialized in a real estate niche uh, rent-to-own investments. He currently holds 17 properties, mostly single-family, and is growing a regional portfolio. Oh, I read that wrong. I will cut it. And he's growing his regional set-your-rent business. He's also, <clears throat> he's also a happily married man with two young kids, ages three and one. Welcome. Thank you, Annette. Yeah, I appreciate it. That was a very good intro. Thank you. So tell me, how did you get into real estate? It was what I call probably the accidental house hack, where I bought a house thinking it'd be really fun for me and my college buddies to party in. And then after a while, you realize that your roommates are paying your rent, your house is appreciating, your mortgage is going down, and you have a little bit of more ownership in your house. And you go, wait a second, this real estate thing's kind of cool. So it was completely by accident and for selfish reasons, you know, with no financial motive, you know, really planned out. But once I had that piece of it, then I started studying everything I could about real estate, started getting into personal development, and then everything kind of took off from there. And that is still, you know, to date, one of my, one of my greatest properties that I've gotten into. So you can never get in too early. Wow. How old were you? 21. Wow. That's amazing. What did your parents say when you said, I just want to buy a house? You know what? They, they they didn't balk at it too much because, as you'll learn, you know, as or as as you know, I'm a civil engineer, and so that's kind of when I first started, you know, having the W two income, and so that was one of the first things that I wanted to do was was to get a home just to get off of campus, and you kind of get the free spirit of of graduating, and from there it was they didn't balk at it too much, but now now looking back, I you know, it's it's been probably the the single greatest financial investment I've ever done. Wow. Awesome. The deal. All right. So tell me about the deal that we're going to talk about. Sure. So this one is 
part of our overall investment strategy. So I, I had alluded to, you know, we started off just doing a house hack. Then we tried to flip, realized that we are terrible at that. Tried to, you know, get into multifamily. That wasn't our niche. And then got into what we call rent to own, which is essentially either lease options or buying properties and selling them on contract for deeds, which is kind of like a seller financing. So this particular one is a deal that we closed two weeks ago uh, for a contract for deed rent to own in our set, set your rent program that we've done. Okay, so for people that don't know, like I didn't know, uh, what is a contract for deed and how does it work? So a contract for deed is very similar to a mortgage and it's almost like seller financing. So think about it, if you have your own home, the bank has a mortgage on it, they've lent you money, and you're gonna to promise to make payments until the whole thing is paid off, and then they'll remove the lien. But with a contract for deed, the title actually doesn't transfer until the end, as opposed to the beginning, like you would on a mortgage. And so essentially they're saying, okay, here's this $100,000 house, if you give me $10,000 today, plus $1,000 a month for 10 years, at the end of that, I'll relinquish the warranty deed to you. And so then they aren't getting a bank to finance the property and get a mortgage. They're buying it from us on contract for deed, you know, kind of falls into the category of seller financing. Wow. And so for example, who pays the taxes because the title is not transferred, right? In the contract for deed, who pays the taxes and the, uh, those kinds of things. You can actually do it two ways. You could escrow it like the bank would normally and then pay taxes and insurance, or you can have them just cover the taxes and insurance. We elect to have them cover the taxes and insurance. One, then they're solely responsible for the insurance as long as we get put in on as additional insured, just like the bank would to cover our investment. And then they get to pay the taxes and any interest and pieces that they have, they get to count as part of their taxes as overall st standardized deductions. Oh, wow. Interesting. All right. So let's, let's go into the deal. What type of asset and where was it located? This was a single family home, like a four bedroom, two bath in Fargo, North Dakota. Fargo, North Dakota. Awesome. And so how did you find it? That is where we're a little bit unique. We have our, we call them rent to own candidates or tenant buyers we actually have them go find a house listed on the MLS and we buy it for them. So we didn't find the deal. This family actually found it for us. Oh, wow. So you kind of save time, you know, like all that effort of finding the, 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 the place to buy, you just don't do all that work and you let them uh, find it. That's right. We give them, you know, as they kind of qualify through our program, we, you know, we first say, Hey, can you get a bank loan? And they say no, because in this case they were an entrepreneur family who just started a daycare and you need like two years or three years of taxes before the bank will actually give you a bank loan. So like, well, I'm sick of renting, you know, can, can we fit in your program? They, they applied. We basically said, yep, here's your max purchase price. Here's your down payment. Here's your monthly payments. You know, accordingly, you know, go out and house shop for any home less than 250,000. So they went with a real estate agent, went shopping around, said, we want this one. And then that's where we started negotiations, putting in a purchase agreement offer. Wow. So this is kind of like you act as a, a bank for people that do not qualify for a regular loan with a bank for many reasons. And it could be one of them, like you are explaining that these people, uh, they didn't have the, the bank requirements, but they did have the income. Correct. Yep. 
Okay. Awesome. Those are usually the, the two. It's, it's usually entrepreneurs or people with, you know, marginal, low credit or just no credit because then the bank, you know, sees them. And so really what we're looking for, who we're trying to help is people that, yeah, are actually high income earners that just for whatever reason don't have the proof of income or the history or the credit to, to back them up. So how do you, um, if it's somebody that doesn't have the greatest credit, uh, how do you evaluate them to make sure that the, these people are good, a good fit for you? Sure. So we have a third party do all the vetting for us as far as background history, you know, basically all the things that you would normally do on a normal rental where we verify income. But we're, I think that this is a, a very poorly served market because you can really take advantage of some of these people. Because they're like, oh, I can't get a bank loan. I'm willing to give you, you know, everything I got just to get into this home. And some people say, well, you have to, you know, refinance with a bank in a year. Otherwise, you lose all of your deposit. We are not in that business at all. We're, we're trying to make sure that, you know, their monthly payment doesn't exceed three times, you know, their gross monthly income to make sure that they're not overextending themselves. We set them up so that their rental payments actually count towards their Experian credit bureau, which helps then just build their credit history. And then we give them at least five years, if not 30 years to refinance with the bank. And so we give them basically a plenty of runway to make sure that they're able to refinance with the bank or sell the property and then just, you know, split the equity and pay off us. Does that help answer your question? Yes, absolutely. That is such a great mission. You know, like you said, it's a, a section of the population that, that, are underserved, so you are filling in that uh, void there. Awesome. All right. So, what was the listing price for this property? So it started off at like two seventy five, and then when we put in the offer, it was listed for two forty five. So you negotiated it, or they happened to lower it? They happened to lower it, so it was so it was listed at two hundred forty five thousand. Awesome. That was a good discount. All right. So when you do the, when you do the offer, do you do the offer or do they do the offer? Or do right. So, yep. So we do the offer and then we just have a nice little contingency clause that says, uh, you know, contingent upon a successfully signed lease or contract for deed. And mm -hmm. so we don't close on the home unless we get our tenant buyer to give us the down payment and sign the lease option or contract for deed before we even close on the home. Okay. Wow. So, so, so yes, a so, lot of push when, when the sellers get this contract with this contingency, they, they do, you know, or if they do, we usually have kind of different levels that we'll walk them back through. We'll say, okay, well, you know, what if we could get it signed here in the next 30 days? What if we could get it signed here, you know, in the next two weeks or right after the inspection? That way, you know, it's not like we're waiting till the very last day and be like, oh, sorry, we didn't get a signed lease and we can walk away from the deal. I like keeping it that way because it gives us off the hook no matter what. But then if we do get pushback, we'll just kind of knock it down or say at the very worst case, we'll just say, we'll continue to market it. And if you get another offer, give us first right of refusal where we can remove that contingency in 24 or 48 hours. Okay. And all, um, I would assume that not every real estate agent know about this, what you're doing, right? So you have to kind of like educate them. You're, you know, the people, the seller's agent. There's, there's a lot of education that goes on here. And I don't think that we do a very good job. And I appreciate you doing the interview because this gives us a chance to 
try to help explain it and break it down to the reasonable because normally sellers are just, I'm going to sell the property and it's like, oh, inspection and appraisal and maybe selling their home contingencies. Like those are the big three. They don't see some of these other investor savvy kind of contingencies and pieces. And, you know, we're pretty upfront with our tenant buyers right away that, you know, we're obviously not going to buy a house unless they're going to live in it. Otherwise, there's no point in us buying the house. So we just want to make sure that that goes. But it absolutely is us with the real estate agent making the offer. And then we just share the information with the tenant buyer. The tenant buyer still pays for the inspection, still pays, you know, for other pieces as if they were the homeowner. And so that just helped. We just kind of play the middleman. Okay. Interesting. Love it. And, and to tell you the truth, like I couldn't get my head around it. Uh, you know, so I had to like, you know, investigate in myself to understand it too. So it's, it's a new concept and not everybody knows about it. Um, maybe, maybe it's not new, but maybe people don't know about it. All right. So, so how did you fund it? How did you pay for it? We got a commercial loan and then private money. And the, the tricky part there was the commercial loan, making sure that they don't have a demand clause or a due on sale clause because we're technically selling it on contract for deeds. So we got the commercial lender to be okay with that. And then we got a private money lender to come up with the 20% down to cover that piece of it. So essentially we had zero down on this deal. Okay, wait, unpack, unpack this again. So the, you did a commercial loan on a residential property. Why did you do that? It is through our LLC. Okay. So you're buying it through your LLC, so you needed a commercial loan. Yep. And then you you had to make sure that you were, were going to be able to transfer the property with, without the uh, mortgage being called, so you had to pay the whole thing. Right. So, yeah, with like Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, they, you know, like the Wells Fargo's of the world, if you sell it to someone else, typically on a contract for deed, even though I've never heard of some, a bank actually calling it due, they say if you transfer this to a trust or an LLC or sell it to another person, you know, you owe them, you know, they have the right to, you know, demand that they, you know, be taking offers that you make them full payment. Commercial loans don't work the same way and they don't follow the same regulations. Although some of them still have that clause. So we just made sure that we got, we worked with our banker, told them up front, Hey, this is what we're doing. And in fact, they said you are way more likely to get a loan, a commercial loan, if you already have somebody lined up, you know, for this property, as opposed to if I said, well, I'm going to buy this single family home and I plan to rent it out for $1,500 a month. Well, here I have somebody that's bringing in 10 grand and renting it at $2,000 a month, you know, already signed in paper, ready in hand. So that looks more favorable to the commercial loan officer because it's a lot more guaranteed in their mind. Okay. All right. So let's do the math. So what was, what did the bank require for down payment? 20%? Correct. But this, the tenant buyers were already bringing 10,000. 10, Correct. Yep. So you got private money for the, the remaining $10,000. Yep, the remaining, yep. Or okay. the remaining, we'll call it $30,000, $30,000-ish because it was about a $240,000 oh. property. And so... I was thinking 20% and <laughs> I translated yeah. that to 20,000. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, all right, so... You got the private money. How long was your private money uh, loan? We are doing it for five years at, this one is 8% interest. And interest only. 8% interest only. 
All right, so when the rent, renter's tenant pay their $2,000 a month, that covers paying your private money in five years? So that is on, you know, our mortgage on the property is without insurance or taxes because the tenant buyer is paying that is okay. roughly $1,000 a month. Okay. We are borrowing it at 4%, you know, got a great interest rate, which is phenomenal, you know, amortized over 25 or 30 years. I forget the exact numbers, but that's essentially a thousand dollars a month. That's all, you know, what we owe every month. We are charging the tenant buyers 8.4% interest rate. And so their monthly payment is 1880 a month. So there's an $800 per month cash flow spread that if we came up with all the cash, it'd be cash flowing $800 per month. In this case, by borrowing the money and paying the 8%, we're willing to not put any money into the deal and only cash flow $550 a month, if that makes sense, because we're paying yeah. our private really money. Good. <laughs> What's that? That's still really good, $500 a month in one home. Yep, with no money down, which is why we obviously fell in love with this strategy. Right, so this is what everybody talks about when they say using other people's money. You know, like you are just taking the private loan and then you're taking the commercial mortgage and you're buying a property and then you're, and then you're using the down payment of these uh, tenant buyers and then none of your money is in yet, you're still getting a $500 cash flow uh, per month. That's right. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, I'm still trying to calculate the numbers in my head because I'm not that good with numbers, but <laughs> Adam here, he's an engineer, so he knows how to do the numbers. I'm going to have to like get off the call and, and do the numbers again, but that is an amazing return. So it is. And luckily I got my, my spreadsheet up here, which is, you know, everybody probably has their own, whether it's, you know, the bigger pockets or the deal check. And so I'm able to rattle off, you know, some of those, but that's, that's kind of the basic, uh, basic run of it. And, you could factor in something, what happens if, you know, you had to foreclose on them or they had to kick out. But as of right now, just based on the, as if everything was proceeding according to the contracts, yes, it looks very good. But, you know, some of these could be potentially riskier, but we feel like, you know, if they're coming in with 10 grand and you're making, you know, $800 a month off of them, even if they, you know, were to default, which would be the, you know, something we don't want, worst case, we'll probably, you know, break even on it. You know, right. All right. So if everything goes perfect, what's the exit strategy for you? How long do they rent? How does it transition to them owning it? Sure. So we hook them up, you know, not only trying to build their credit through that program, but we hook them up with a nonprofit credit counselor, not credit repair, because I think credit repair can be crooks a little bit. Mm -hmm. I think free nonprofit credit counselors will they'll say, okay, here's where you're at. Here is where you kind of need to get to get, you know, to a minimum, you know, credit ranking to get a bank loan, connect them with an officer and then say, all right, over the next, you know, months or years, here's about what you have to do to get into that position. The, the best case scenario is as soon as they're able to refinance, they're going to make their, their payments will go down, right? Cause they're going to go from eight and a half percent interest to 4% or 5% if they can get a Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac loan. We'll get our investment out, you know, with some profit because we have a markup on the sale price. And then everybody's kind of a win-win and we'll go do another deal. So we are always encouraging them as soon as you can refinance with the bank, we encourage you to do that. However, if it takes them three years or four years or five years, 
Well, now their balance, you know, goes from 260 to 255 to 247 to 240 to 230. And so worst case scenario, after five years, hopefully the property is appreciated by one or 2%. So it's worth, you know, 280,000. Their remaining balance is 240. So you could go to a bank and say, hey, I have, you know, 40,000 in equity here. Can I use that as my, you know, 10% loan to value or 15% loan to value? And then the bank will typically look on that more favorably to then refinance. And then if none of that works, they can just continue making payments. And after 30 years, they'll own the home outright. Wow. All right. So you mentioned that you had a markup at the sale. So do you... Um, determine this price when they buy it or you just do an appraisal when they are ready to refinance? When they are ready to refinance, if they're using a bank, they'll likely need a new appraisal because it'll probably be with, you know, past the six month or whatever term that the appraisal will be good for. And so then whatever the appraisal comes in at, we could probably renegotiate my assumption or we try to set it up so that at the very least with their down payment and everything intact, that it'll at least come in at that value for the appraisal amount. Now, if, you know, home prices drop, we can't control that. And yeah, they might be upside down a little bit, but just like everybody else would be, that would be a homeowner if, if the prices. So if, if they're able to do that, yes, they would get the appraisal, reappraise it out as long as it's at or less than they would. Do but it. what, what, Oh, I guess they don't pay you because they have to, you're paying the bank, right? So, do you like let's say they bought it for 245 right that's what they offer uh what you offer um what would they sell did you say okay when we sell it or when you refinance it 20 uh five years from now uh it's we're gonna we want to get 280 for example do you mark up uh, that or not sure so if it's a lease option which this one wasn't, you can typically set a price and then sometimes you can add an inflation factor so that it starts at 240 or maybe it starts at 255, but then goes to 260, 265 every year after. With a contract for deed, you lock in a sales price. Oh, okay. So this one we sold for 258,000 on the contract for deed. 258. And so there is that initial markup so that in the event, you know, just because we're covering some of our risks that if they bought with us, you know, rented it for one month and then refinanced, we would cover some of our closing costs, you know, in that about 10 grand spread plus make a little bit just to ensure that both us and our investors and whatever points that we're paying, we're able to recoup some of those costs. All right. But you said that price at the beginning. On a contract for deed and a lease option, typically you set that price and everybody knows as they're walking in the closing table, like, yep, I'm buying this for this much. And it's right on the contract for deed. Yes. Okay. Excellent. <clears throat> you know what? That's, that's a, a really good strategy. I mean, you know what's going to happen and you have a couple of options, right? Like they can decide that they don't want to do it. And then what happens to their deposit if, that, if they decide they don't want to buy the house? They put down 10%. Yeah. So if they, I mean, if they truly just walked away, it would be like, if you walked away from your mortgage on your house, the bank so you would lose your deposit and take it. What we would recommend that they do is continue to make the payments, but then list the property and, you know, try to either do for sale by owner or list it with an agent and then sell it hopefully for more than, you know, what it's, what they paid for or what it's worth so that they can at least recoup 
all, if not more of their down payment, or at least part of it, so that they don't just walk away, I would strongly recommend selling so that they can recoup that if for some reason something comes comes right. We haven't had that issue, but that's what we would recommend as opposed to just walking away. Right. And, and so what would happen if they just can't pay the mortgage anymore and they want to walk away and they don't want to sell? Do you have to foreclose on them? In a contract for deed in our state and most states, you would have to foreclose on them. Yep. I mean, okay. you give them, it's usually like you give them so many you know payments or weeks or months to get the payments right. And, and then every investor can do what they want, you know, on how strict they follow the, the law. We're trying to be as lenient as we can. But yeah, eventually if there's like, no, I'm not going to pay and I'm not going to move. You're like, okay, well then you have to take the legal action. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. That's incredible. And how many properties have you done with this method? We, this last one was our ninth. <clears throat> and what's the, well, I don't know if they, they are already the full life, but do you have an average where people decide they want to refinance or you're yeah, not so, seeing that yet? Yeah. Cause the, the first one of these that we started doing was last year and the intent was to do as many, or the intent was for them to refinance, you know, maybe after a year, sometimes it takes a little bit longer and then COVID happened and that kind of put a halt on everything. So that, that maybe put some dampers on people refinancing this summer because that's, you know, some of the first ones that we did that were coming up on their first year, which is about kind of what we expected, you know, how long it would take for people to potentially refinance. And so we have yet to have somebody go full circle, but we have yet to have anybody, you know, walk away or have to take legal action against someone either. Right. And hopefully it doesn't happen. <laughs> Correct. Yep. Okay. So, but do you check on the, these tenants that they are following the steps to, um, to uh, fix their credit? like the ones that need to fix their credit or you just let them? Yeah, we strongly recommend they do. And, and you can only make so many offers, but we don't, you know, at the very beginning we say, Hey, you know, reach out to this and this is what you're you know going to do as far as enforcing that. Yeah. They have to sit down with the bank and they have to refinance. We don't make them do that. Because Although we we've checked in and be like, Hey, you know, interest rates are really low it would be in your best advantage to cut your payment from 1800 to 1200. If you can get a bank loan, have you thought about it? And honestly, it's just, it's not looking out for us. It's just, if they can drop their payment by, you know, $400, it's in their best interest. Right. Because at the end of the day, you're still making the $500 a month in this case. Right. So yep. for you, if you keep getting that for a long time, it's really um, not going to affect you. Right. Because you're going to have the bank loan. You have the private money will be the only, um, money that you will have to pay in five years. Sure. Yep. Right. So how do you, how long do you, um, it's the term of, I know that the term is the five years, but are the payments or they are, so it's a balloon payment because it's a interest only. Yep. Right. So you really, um, probably wanna, um, be able to pay, you have to pay it off by the fifth year. So what would you do if the people are renting and they are not ready to refinance and you are already on, the, on your fourth year? Sure. I think this would be similar to like the commercial loan example where they'll fix it for five years, but then amortize it over a longer period. And after five years, you kind of have to figure out what you want to do. At that point, it, we're assuming that our portfolio as we buy properties at different years, we'll be able to absorb that and we'll just move cash. Some, some will go, some won't go, or we'll buy or borrow other private money to, you know, to keep some of these going. But eventually 
all of that cash flow, you could argue is just eventually going to go and pay off, you know, the investor, you know, at $500 a month, you can pay off, you know, the $30,000 in, you know, not, not too long if we needed to. Right. Absolutely. And if you are doing like nine of them right there, you have all this cash flow and be able to move the money um, from one to the other one. Yep. All right. Awesome. Uh, that is really interesting. And I think, I think a lot of people are going to be like, their minds are going to be like, what, what did he just say? <laughs> it took me a little bit to understand it. So and I, if, I was gonna say, if I could, I don't think, you know, we call it rent to own as lease options or contract for deeds. Typically rent to own means lease options. We just use that overcompensing umbrella because nobody's, you know, there's not really a terminology that you kind of get lost in all that. I think people have been doing it for a long time. Maybe having the tenant buyer go find the home, you know, for us is a little bit of a new concept, but a lot of people, if you're renting your own house, like I always say, if you're living in a house right now and you're thinking about moving, just list it as a, you know, rent to own or put it on Zillow for an extremely high price and maybe somebody will do it. And it's kind of like the make me move rent price. Right. Yeah, no, I, I, I think I've heard of this um, for a while. I just didn't understand what it meant. You know, I never really investigated because uh, I normally, I started with multifamily with just a duplex, but I never looked into the single family uh, market. So to me, it was a totally new concept. Uh, and for people that are just starting to get uh, familiar with investing, this could be a really good option for them to start and uh, and using using other people's money. You know, maybe for the first one, they need to use their money, but maybe on the following ones, they can start using other people's money. Yeah, and and I will I will fully disclose that there's we we screwed up a lot of deals before we got to the point that we are now you know, learning all of these intricacies, like we're, we're stacking so many different strategies that as we've learned, we've kind of just slowly pivoted and learned, like we didn't walk in and hit a home run on our first deal. You know, this is our, this was our 17th property, you know, that we bought. So we were, you know, had the opportunity to screw up five times, do five good ones, then screw up three more times. And then, you know, finally get it right on the, you know, 17th one and hopefully only improve, you know, with time and experience. And so usually for people getting in the game, it's just kind of getting that first one. And yes, if you can use this strategy, you know, more power to you. But, you know, we certainly had our fair share of bumps and bruises and doing things wrong and having to do evictions and, you know, going through all that to get to the point we are today. Right. But that's how you learn. And that's the best way you're going to learn. Because, you know, sometimes when you just learn the, the, you know, from a book, like it doesn't really click. But once you do it and then you make the mistakes, you will never make that mistake again. Yep. So yeah, really we effective. Yep. I, I fully agree. Expert tips. All right. So now is the time of the show where uh, Adam is going to give me three tips. Uh, so the tips are going to be about taking advantage of your W2 job to start investing. Yeah. Three advantages of having a W2. I know for those that are stuck in a W-2, they're like, oh, if I could just get out of my W-2, I could do real estate full time. And that is certainly a good strategy. You know, if, if that's kind of what floats your boat, what we have found out is being employed, you know, may have its disadvantages, but we've seen, you know, some pretty strong advantages. So the first one being financing to get a commercial loan or a bank loan to give you a loan on an investment property, that W-2 income to a bank is like the gold or platinum standard. Like, 
if you have a W-2, like you can't get any better than that. If you have 1099, if you have self-employment, if you're you know, doing that, they're like, oh, that doesn't really work. W-2, that's what they like to see for right, wrong or indifferent, but they like to do that. So you have the great power of leverage in your hands by having the W-2. Absolutely. The, right. the, second, the, the second one that I've found is just a, a general level of professionalism. You know, how to send a professional email, how to use Excel, how to use it. I guess being in the engineering trade, having to talk up at, you know, city council meetings. And so leveraging any aspects that you do in your W-2 job of communicating with the team, how to, you know, have overall efficiencies at work, apply those and keep those skills to, you know, have a good conversation with someone that they're like, oh, this, this person actually has, you know, they know how to use you know, Google Calendar, they know how to send out invites, they know how to respond to emails about promptness, how to, you know, use that. And it's not just a, you know, kind of a off the cuff, unprofessional, you know, look or feel to things. So I think that's a, that's a piece that I've picked up from the W2. And then the third piece is, I think you can build your off ramp really well. The metaphor that was told to me is, you know, if you're in your W-2 and you want to go into the entrepreneur world, you could be in a small boat and you could see the land and you could just jump and you could just frantically swim like heck and hope you make it, you know, to land, depending on how far you are out. But your W-2 with, you know, a steady income, having a 401k match is kind of like your backup plan C or even to leverage that in a self-directed IRA with the match on the 401k, you can just slowly say, okay, I have this. And now between the hours outside of eight to five, I can do my entrepreneur thing. And instead of watching TV, I can do, you know, real estate. And that, now you're getting the steady income that's maybe not as predictable being an entrepreneur, but you're slowly growing your business as an entrepreneur while you're doing it. And so those are the, the three tips that I would say to take advantage of if you have a W-2 job. Absolutely. You know, uh, when you go to get a, a loan, it's, they look at if you have a W-2 job, it's so easy to get a loan. But once you, I, I hear this from a lot of uh, investor friends that once they didn't have the job, it was really hard to get a loan. And that's when you have to sometimes resort into doing commercial loans, which are more expensive, but because you don't have access to the residential loans because of that reason. So those are amazing tips. So Adam, where can people find you uh, if they want to connect with you? Maybe somebody has questions about this uh, investment strategy. Where can they reach out to you? I would, I would likely say the preferred is probably an email, which is, which is homes at setyourrent.com. Or if you want to learn more about us, you can just go to setyourrent.com or type it into Google and hopefully it shows up, you know, as depending on how well our SEO is doing that day. But visiting our website or sending us an email is, is the best way. We're on Facebook and YouTube. You can search that, but sometimes just an email or uh, visiting us and filling out any information if you want to is probably the best couple ways of getting a hold of us. Awesome. All right, guys, this was an amazing episode. I hope you reach out. Thank you, Adam, for being on the show. And if you liked and you like the content and you are uh, learning something new, please uh, subscribe to the podcast or subscribe to the YouTube channel and give us a comment. You know, the, the, the reviews help us a lot to get our message out to more people. So if you can just... Uh, Share, like, comment. Uh, that would be awesome. So everybody have a wonderful day. And thank you, Adam, again for being here.
Thank you, Annette, for everything that you do and the, the, the awesome people that you're connecting with and what you're building, I think, is, is very much needed. And I just want to say thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking with you and keep doing what you're doing. I, I absolutely love it. Thank you, my friend. Bye, everybody. This was Real Estate Deal Closers with Annette Talee, brought to you by Talee Investments. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Our goal is to provide amazing value on your real estate journey. Connect online at www.taleeinvestments.com, where you can find this episode and more. Did you like this episode? Subscribe, like, and share.